my thighs were bored in the darkness. Molded by it. They didn't see the sun until they were grown boys. And by then, it was blinding on the podcast known as Trapped Under Plastic. The podcast where white people... Oh, it doesn't say white people. (laughs) (laughs) We're changing that. The podcast where white people are pressured into painting display models one guest at a time. In front of a live studio audience. Just kidding. We've got a new piece of kit here. It's got a bunch of fun little sounds on it. You yeah. want to demo us another one there? I'm, like, I'm pretty fucking excited for this toy. Wait, so did the intro actually say white people? It didn't say white people. You said it again. Um, It says where people. Oh. I think on your second take, you also said white people. Well, yeah, we're just changing it. Now it says white people. <laughs> okay, okay. It's retconned in, baby. Yeah. All, All right. right. This is the best sound on here. That's going to get a lot of mileage, I yeah, think, on this yeah. podcast. That, that button... It's going to be thoroughly worn out within a couple of episodes. Yeah. And then we could also spit some hot beats on here. Oh. Here we are, live Saturday night. <laughs> oh, it's still going. Okay, yeah. it's done. I don't know. I think having this thing in between us where John can access it, it's going to be a mistake, so we'll have to see. We might have to cut off his sound pad privileges. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's get on to the preamble ramble. Let's do it. Before you, you think of putting the mute button on my access to that thing. Um, <laughs> first and foremost... We're coming to you live from Las Vegas, Nevada for a painting class for Las Vegas Open, which is in January. So Mm. you got plenty of time between today and January to save up your John Bucks, put them down to register for the class. John Bucks. Holy cow. Yeah. And you're with us for 48 straight hours. Straight hours. Friday and Saturday. Pee in a bucket. Yeah. You got to bring a sleeping bag. We're gonna be all. We're gonna start a fire in the corner of the room, make marshmallows. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) If somebody, the first person to die, we're gonna eat. That's that. These are the rules. You pay pay for this. Yeah, this is part of the class experience. (laughs) This will make you a better painter. Trust us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can go on there. We'll have links to the actual sign up for the class in the show notes below, so you can join us. Um, We did a fair amount of work. Like way back in the day, we first developed this class. Um, first of all, you did a buttload of work to make the digital course. Yes. And then to turn some a lot of the stuff from the digital course into a, a physical like binder with three like super fancy glossy sheet binder that all the students are gonna get. Mm-hmm. Showing all the things we go through, talking about the Doom Cube. Mm, the Doom Cube. And we officially can't talk about the Doom Cube live and trapped under plastic because it is such a revolutionary learning mechanic for miniature planning. And that's why you come to our class. So you get your own very own Doom Cube. Yes. Patent pending. Yeah. But yeah, we paint the Duchess from start to finish. You get access to the full digital course, that laminated PDF John was talking about. You get a Doom Cube. You get the model fully assembled and primed. And you get us for 48 hours sexually. Yeah. And as we... What? You heard me. <laughs> oh, 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 no. Oh, no. You got to wear the short shorts again. Oh, no, buddy. They're coming out. <laughs> I feel like everyone is like shocked by my short short wearing, uh, seeing the comments in the last episode. But team, I got to tell you, these, these puppies have been on my thighs... All the time. You just didn't see them because they were under a desk. Yeah, that's it. Like, I didn't see what the big deal was because I've been looking straight into the fucking eye of the sun <laughs> for like five years. As, uh, as now, our, y'all got to deal with it too. <laughs> yeah. As our friend Sam Lunch would say, my, my thighs are finally unchained now. Yeah, yes. they are. 
They are unchained. Now we're going to get a whole new audience. We're going to reach a new demographic yeah. of, of whitey thigh lovers. Whitey thigh lovers. Go to that subreddit. <laughs> <laughs> it's just pictures of Scott. Yes. Oh, no. Um, so, uh, yeah, we join us for the goddamn class. Yeah, check it out. Links down in the show notes description, depending on where you're watching or listening. You know, we uh, didn't talk about 24, this. 24 students. 24 students is the cap. Yep. Not 25, not 26, not 23. Yeah, I picked 24 because it's like two students at a desk. Um, I don't know why I picked that number. Twelve tables. I could probably do more, honestly. I think it's something to do with Leonardo da Vinci's like holy numbers. Mm. I think twenty-four is one of the holy numbers. Okay, yeah. It's divisible by three. What is this? Is this like Man in the Iron Mask reference? What I don't. This? Yeah, I don't know. You don't know? You're just making it up right now, or you're just not? I feel like it's a thing. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of. A, I might be in somewhere in the Da Vinci. Here's the thing, Vinci dude. Code. He like references shit. I don't, you don't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> How, I have any chance to know what he's talking about, guys? Come on, dude. Yeah, it's like the Da Vinci Code, All I right. think. Well, that's not uh Wait, would you say Leonardo DiCaprio? Oh, you said Da Vinci. Yeah. Oh, okay, my bad, my bad. Sorry. <laughs> that's why I said Man with the Iron Mask. All right, anyways, <laughs> I'm an idiot. Next Pramble Ramble, Zumi Keto. Simon made a six-foot-tall cork tower base, and it was glorious. The video was hilarious. He, he takes his goddamn shirt off and he's a bear of a man yeah he is he is truly i for a second there i thought it was a uh fucking hugh jackman stunt double <laughs> he's dude, so yeah. fucking furry he's yeah, he, the claws i yeah, dude he's kind of he's kind of big he's like Ruff. he's like he, he, i feel like he could fold me into a box if he needed to yeah 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 or break a folding chair over your back yeah yeah, <laughs> and then, yeah, you yeah. Could, then you could curl up next to him like he's a fucking tauntaun and yeah. you know, slice him open again inside of him yeah. <laughs> it's getting fucking dark <laughs> what we've learned from this because he made a video about a cork tower because he got trolled on Instagram. So what we've learned is that the Goody PP Nation, if we continue to troll all of the content creators, wonderful as they are, eventually they will act. Yes. So trolling leads to content. Right. And it's the content we we want to see. Yes. I want to see more bare-chested mini painters. Next, I think I want to see Vince, though. Yeah, I don't know if I can handle that. No. There's already plenty of pictures of him on the internet bare chested though. Oh yeah, you're right. There is. There's tons. <laughs> um <laughs> But the I, I've actually I took it a little bit further in the comment section of Zumikito's video. I said you went through all that hard work to make a cork tower and you didn't even paint the model like a clown fiesta. God damn it, Zumi, how could you miss that? It's just, it's just like that's it's an easy one. That was a meatball thrown across the plate and you just didn't swing, baby. Yeah, you just yeah. So I think we're gonna have in the near future Zumi Quinto paints a cloud fiesta. Yeah. And so yeah. we're we're excited for that video. Yes, we are. But that one was great. Everyone check it out. Also linked down in the show notes. It was hilarious. We need more hilarious mini painting content. Well, we do. We do. We talk a little bit about a uh, little bit about TV shows, Scott. Ooh. TV show because I like TV shows. You know, we we made a uh, an episode where we made up the greatest mini painting reality show that was never made and it will probably never be made. However, unless, unless, unless a TV executive from Hollywood, California were to contact us and have a meeting with us about the show. Hmm. This is all hypothetical. Yeah, this is all hypothetical. This meeting totally didn't happen yesterday. Yeah. And I definitely didn't do it twice. No. Definitely didn't. That was a bit of a deeper cut. Uh, I, 
We can't talk about a lot of details <laughs> about uh, about Mini Painting Fight Club, but what we can talk about is that there is a greater than zero percent chance that our little baby Mini Painting Reality Show mm. will see the light of day. Yes. And that is all we can say. That's all we can say. We actually don't know how much we can say. And so we're trying to restrain ourselves because normally we kind of fly off the handle and say everything and yeah. then get in trouble. And we'll get in trouble and then the show will never be made. And it'll and be our fault. Yeah. And then people in black suits will come with silencers and pistols and they'll break into the office. And we'll have to like go through the ceiling panels and, and get out. Mm, yeah. And then be on the run. Mm-hmm. Like Thelma and Louise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And one of us already has a reputation about leaking stuff, so we don't want to continue that reputation, am I right? <laughs> I honestly did not see that coming. <laughs> and that was perfect. You know, if it has to do with pushing buttons that make funny sounds, I feel like this is the I feel like that's your job. My calling in life, I just never realized. <laughs> Dude, you had the the most perfect comedic timing. Oh, all right, yes, that was the conversation we had. It was very exciting. We'll let you know more when we can. When we can, yes. All right, Johnny boy, you have something in here though. A friend started mini painting. Who who is a friend? Yeah, so a couple of videos ago, I cr- uh, made a video on like quick painting of your board game minis. Um, using like a monochrome paint style. The Bard Song stuff, right? Bard Song by Steamforge Games. And that was actually for, we were starting that game with my my every Saturday group, which is me, Dan, and Alexa. We play over at their house in their big fancy fucking gaming table. They are hardcore, cooperative, miniature board game players. And we're starting Bard Song. I came over for our first session with it, showed them all the minis. They were enthusiastic. Alexa... Um, as a as a background in like doing artsy craftsy stuff, she makes some really intricate, amazing like Christmas ornaments, almost like um, uh, origami, where they're all geometric and crazy and stuff like that. And then she, she used to paint them and stuff. But about five years ago, Alexa had a stroke, and so she's really struggled with hand eye coordination and and manual dexterity and stuff. But something about seeing those models and having watched the video. She said, I want to do it. Like, I want to try. Nice. So um, she's super excited. She she cleaned off her, her craft room table. She asked me for advice on, on stuff to buy. Um, I surprised her with a, a full Pro Acryl paint set and dry brushes. And um, she's going to get started painting the rest of the models from Bardsong, which is great because that means I don't have to. Nice. She's going to paint them like you painted them in that video? Yep, she's gonna. I. It seemed to me like it was a way that the barrier for actually starting mini painting, because she had expect, expressed interest before, but it just, she was just not confident mm-hmm. that her skills would be able to do something and she wouldn't get frustrated. It just felt achievable for her, um, and that wow. it's just kind of like the entry point. So that's amazing. That's that's so cool. That you made that video and it had that effect, because like. You could you could very easily slip into like uh, by you I mean any one person could slip into like kind of like a gatekeeping mentality and be like that's not how minis are painted right. but it's like yeah it's it's totally different than people people normally do but this format enabled someone who previously didn't paint minis to want to paint minis ergo that's a fucking win right amazing and cool. I stand I do still stand behind the fact that if you do this and you kind of get the hang of this <clears throat> you can take the next step. To adding more color through contrast or sure. through glazes or whatever, and you can have really damn good minis for very few extra steps. But just getting this foundation, I think I, I stand behind the fact that it's a really good um, kind of basis for for some mini painting. So I agree. I will 
when she gets some stuff done, maybe I'll bring it in. We'll take a look at it as long as she's okay with that. <laughs> she's a, she's kind of a perfectionist, so she might get mad at me for for offering that up. So okay. sorry, Alexa. <laughs> okay. Does Alexa get a lot of shit about like Amazon Alexa and stuff like that? Yeah, they can't have that in their house <laughs> or in their cars. <laughs> she doesn't like that. Yeah, you can change its name. Oh. So I named mine computer. Well, it, you can't change it to whatever. It has like a list of stuff, but I picked computer because it reminded me of like Star Trek. It's like computer. Oh. Bring up the logs. Can you change it to Samuel L. Jackson? You can't, but there is a celebrity like option, and I think it rotates. At the moment, it's Santa Claus. In fucking July? I don't... Yeah, I don't get it. It's like I thought when I enabled the, the celebrity feature, it would like give me a list of celebs, and it was like... It was just Santa Claus. <laughs> we, we only have the budget for one celebrity at a time. It's going to rotate. Santa Claus is pretty cheap, so. Right, yeah. It's going to be somebody random next time. It's like, all right, next month, it's Dana Carvey for a month. <laughs> like, what? Okay. Uh, cool with that. Okay, I think that's all our preamble ramble. That is. I know what we painted. I'll just get this out of the way. I've been doing a lot of office renovation. It's basically done, so I didn't paint anything. But that will. I think this is the last time that's going to be the case for like the foreseeable future. Um, the my office renovation and move in is is almost done. I think I have like I don't know, maybe like five small projects left that are like pretty easy to do. But all like the major things are complete, and so. No more. I loved how you said all those words and none of it was about painting minis. I know. I'm just making excuses. I, I, for the first time in the longest time, actually came with painted minis that I painted for my last two videos. Ooh. One of them was uh, uh, not the last two that you guys will know of, but last two at the time of this recording. Um, these were the one that I painted for testing out the new contrast paints in the Marine. And the next one was testing out the new shades in the Swamp Boggler orc. All right, so <coughs> these bo both of these paint jobs look pretty damn good. Yeah, they're uh, both pretty quick paint jobs, but they're like, I, I want to do a clean Games Workshop style using Games Workshop paints in kind of a, a table-ready um, system. I put more time into the Swamp Boggler than I did to the Marine, but... That was using the old school three-step method for Games Workshop. And that was paint, uh, paint shade, and highlight. Uh, with, the, with showing a couple of different other um, uses for shades in there, mostly in like tinting and additional um, glazing to smooth over midsections, but still doing it in a fairly quick amount of time. So it's not expecting people to paint to like a display quality, but a couple of additional tips. You're a good mini painter, bro. Hey, you know that? I appreciate that. This uh, this swamp boggler, which is a fucking retarded name. <laughs> I'm a swamp boggler. <laughs> Look uh, at him. That's what it looks like. You know, say. honestly, yeah, this guy's definitely a boggler, dude. That's all, I don't know if he's. Does, I don't know okay, that anyway. name. Every time I say that word, I feel like I need to credit. Vincey V, because he is the creator of the term swamp boggler. Oh yes, and he, yes, and he needs to get credit for that. Okay, you know, this range of orcs looks so fucking goofy, and all the names are so ridiculous that, like, Swamp Boggler, I was totally on board with that being an official GW name, but it isn't. 
No, it's not. Oh, no. They're, uh, I don't even remember what their true name is. That's how much Swamp Boggler is a better fit. <laughs> yeah, dude. Today, we're doing a giveaway in the stream, and it's it's an Auric model, and it has some ridiculous, asinine name, and I couldn't remember it, so I had to like, type it like off the box, like word for word. But yeah, so I just kind of assume they're all ridiculous. Gormardurak, the unthirstables. <laughs> Unthirstable, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, but they, it was fun. I mean, I will say that, like, the new contrasts act like the old contrasts. You just get more saturated colors. Like, that yellow on that armor is one coat of yellow contrast. Like, it's powerful as fuck over white. And then it's just some edge highlighting and chipping. Okay, I was going to ask if you did edge highlighting. What I'm noticing on his leg here is that there's some color modulation. There is. Which is impressive because toward the top of the kneecap, it's a darker orangey mm-hmm. thing. And then lower, it's a, more of a yellow color. Did you intentionally do that? Did you like pull the paint toward the top of the kneecap? Yeah. So what I did was I, I tried to, just like when you're when you're painting with like any paint stroke, specifically a glaze, where you pull up your brush at the end is where the most majority of the pigments are going to stay. So I tried to do that with contrast in a couple of areas that it would make more logical sense. Mm. Other areas were a big flat stuff like, um, like the shoulder pads and stuff. You kind of go for the bottom corners, but by and large, you just kind of let it do its thing. Yeah. And so I know they reformulated their white primer, right? Yes. Yeah. New spray primer. That's the new spray primer on that. So I am still noticing, and this is not really a fault of you, but mostly just white primer. On the right side of the model, we're getting some texture from like the... Yep. Happens with white primer all the time. Yeah, that's why you use a goddamn airbrush, man. Doesn't happen <laughs> with an airbrush when it does with a spray can. This this is the best white out of a spray can I've ever used. But it's this... I, I did it... Um, in two different times. The first time I just shook the shit out of it, took it out and sprayed it. And that was this guy. The second time I noticed a little bit of the speckling, much less than usual, but I was still there and it still bugged me. So the second time I sat in warm water for like 10 minutes mm. and then shook the shit out of it and did it. And it was smooth as fuck. Okay. So you got to take a little bit extra care. And, but yeah, I also this, this is like pin washing, like, this yellow where you see like looking his toesies and stuff, it's like a brown and across the back, that is a, a pin wash of uh contrast um Gilliman flesh. So that nice shade that you're seeing in those areas are not what that yellow does. You have to go do that extra work. Did you do that anywhere else other than the toes? Um go on his like the back of his calves and up in the backpack. There's like panel lining and very faint panel lining and stuff. Okay. Sick. So it's it's there. Did you do anything to make that panel lining easier? Like you didn't like apply like a layer of gloss varnish or something like that? No. No, I just used a really th- a really thin um, synthetic brush and you wick off most of the contrast paint. The contrast paint is really good for that though because you can almost dab it like an ink and it will kind of... <laughs> yes, it's it's got some surfactant in there for sure. Um, I've, I've used it as a research shade before. Some of the darker ones work really well. Yeah. All right, sick. Nice paint job. They look awesome. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the, the Boggler, one thing I'll say about the... Watch the video, motherfuckers. Um, <laughs> but the the new shades for a majority of the colors, they do a much better job of not tinting the raised surfaces, mm. but still having the same amount of impact in the shadows. Okay. So for his skin, I painted it all green. I put this new Targer Rage shade on, which is a beautiful, like purpley like 
deep purpley, slightly reddish color that it's really cool for like skin tones and stuff. And that's what the shadow color is on his skin. I did not have to go back through with the base tone again to reestablish it. I could go right to highlights. Okay, that's kind of nice. That's kind of like a very standard painting process yes. where you like paint, wash, paint the same color again, highlight, highlight, highlight. Yeah, yeah so okay, cool. a majority of the colors, they that's like they the tinting is knocked down. It acts way more like an oil wash. So did they re-release all of their wash range in this V2? Like, do I have to buy like like whatever the ones, Nolan Oil again? I talked about this in the video. Scott, watch the goddamn video. <sighs> it just came out like literally hours ago. Yeah, the, well, yeah, it has not come out hours ago for the listeners, but for you, yes, it came out like an hour and a half ago. Yes. Um, yes and no. Okay. They did release, they re-released the entire range again. Okay. And they had added seven new colors. They're now in the contrast bottles. That so what it used to cost you eight dollars and fifty cents for a twenty-four milliliter of shade yeah. now costs you eight dollars and fifty cents for an eighteen milliliter of shade. Oh no! Yeah, and I, I addressed that in the video. You, I made you it. Let, you let them have I it. I made that very clear. Okay. Uh, that's horseshit. Um, but um, yes, I do. You need to throw away your current stuff and get this stuff in the video. My, you don't have to say if you want. I, 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 you, you, you're going to watch the video for other things. You can find out how you too can paint a swamp ogler. <laughs> but um, do not get rid of the stuff you have. It's it's not that massive of a, of a difference. And if you like, you go through your null oil and you're halfway through an army and you run out, buy the new one because worst case scenario in certain things like doing metallics, you might have to maybe do two cults of null oil to get the same effect. But honestly, it's going to look so close. You're not going to notice. Okay. All right. That sounds good. <laughs> awesome. All right. Today's episode is brought to us by an event. Mm. This event is known as the Mr. Mephisto Rantathon. What is that? Uh, it's an event. <laughs> <laughs> it's an event that's happening here later in July. The exact date are July 30th, starting at 10 a.m. through July 31st at 4 p.m. And if you've heard of a telethon, have you heard of a telethon before? Yeah. Where like people call in and they have different acts come on and they try yeah. to raise money for something. That's what they're doing here. And we're in a little bit of a weird situation because this is run, put on by, and live streamed by Mr. Mephisto, who is an amazing member of the Age of Sigmar content creator community. He does a lot of amazing things on Twitch and has a great YouTube channel as well. And he doesn't know this ad spot is taking place right now. Uh-oh. Yeah, one of his great supporters is really kind of pulling a fast one on Mr. Mephisto <laughs> and trying to get all the goody peepees to come to the live stream and check it out and see all the money that's trying to be raised for a very, very good cause. Okay. And that cause is mental health in the hobby. Mm. So all the money that's going to be raised for this long rantathon live stream will go to benefit mental health and the nonprofit known as Take This. And a nice thing about this as well is that Mr. Mephisto never sees any of this money. It goes directly to the charities. So there is no take. He's got no like personal interest in any of this. He's been doing this for a number of years now and they've had a lot of success. They've raised a ton of money for this and you get a lot of cool stuff for checking it out. So Every hour, there is going to be giveaways. There's over 8,000 
$1,000 in miniatures that will be given Whoa. away for this stream. Every hour, there'll be a giveaway. There's going to be guest hosts. He's going to have a bunch of crazy celebrities, uh, mini painting and wargaming celebrities on, including the very own Vinci V. Oh, and they're just going to be having a lot of fun talking a lot about mini painting, mini wargaming, that kind of stuff. Okay, cool. Do we know like what the prizes are? Are they like all GW stuff or are they like a mixture of stuff? Um, I don't know all the details on that, but I do know that like full armies are going to be given oh away my gosh. or like starter armies nice. or like a bunch of individual models for different games. So, okay, cool. And it takes place on Twitch. Yes, it'll be on Twitch. It'll be on Mr. Mephisto's Twitch channel. And we'll put links down to there below as well as a link to the charities that this is supporting. So you can check them out as well. Thank you to the Patreon who supported this podcast by having us shout out a cool charity opportunity. Make sure to go check it out so you guys can support mental health in the hobby. Scott. Scott, what's the topic for today? I hate heartbeat sounds, dude. What's the topic for today? The topic today comes from a goodie peeper known as Nick Essek. <laughs> And uh, his name is Sexual Chocolate on Discord. Thank you for including that. And here's what he said, or asked rather. I'm looking at, I'm looking to try my hand at a diorama that includes a larger GW model, a handful of people-sized ones, and background features of some kind. I'm curious as to what steps you guys would take from the very beginning with cultivating a story, planning steps, crafting, and painting steps. Glue everything down or do it in pieces, etc. And then including details like Easter eggs. So basically... We're going to do a little mental workshop today about what we would do if we were making a large-scale Monstroids-esque diorama. Wow. Okay. That's a, a full disclosure here, I don't think either of us have ever done something like this before. <laughs> I think that was a no. Uh, so we're just going to be kind of like thinking about what we would do, but we don't, we don't have necessarily experience. But I am very excited to chat about this and kind of like – say the process, the order of operations, you know, how I would go about it if I were to try it for the first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've done, not to maybe the giant multiple figures extreme, but I've done some fairly big storytelling bases stuff for the uh, creature caster. Yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. So that's got some stuff and some Easter eggs and stuff. But yeah, there is in my head a fairly logical order to do things. However, there are, a number of small steps along the way that you often will make a mistake when you didn't do it a certain way the first time and you're like oh god i should have done this way back in this step before yeah so so let's talk about it let's, so, let's talk about making I'm, I'm trying to come up with the, the title for the episode right now making the best miniature diorama how to make the best miniature diorama what diorama would fit in your diarrhea no that's not <laughs> in your diarrhea <laughs> Okay, so I guess the first thing we got to talk about is like, what's the diorama going to be of? It could be of something that you have thought up. It could be of a, like a, a story from a book that you have read. Have you read a portion of the uh, Night Lords trilogy? Not yet. I have like 15 pages left in my current book and okay. I'm reading it next. Okay, I was cool. hoping to get to it before this episode, but I have not. Okay. Um, there are, so I, I, I've read it and there are like, couple scenes in that trilogy that you could easily make dioramas of um and that's like a great place like black library if you wanted to find any you know, like games workshop inspired dioramas so you got to find something kind of inspire that story um do you have any like stories or something like that you want to make dioramas of yes i do i think typically i mean there are some you can get it from like literary works and stuff but 
I often find that if you don't have a good like visual representation, you have to have this extra layer of, I don't want to say talent or skill, but to be able to craft something that is compelling to look at, mm-hmm. um, that if you have a, a piece of artwork or whatever that you're basing it off of, they've done all that composition. The original artist has done most of that heavy lifting for you. Yeah. So you can, if you take something off of a book, it can be an amazing story, an amazing scene, whatever, and can still look like doo-doo. Yeah. Having something translate to a viewer is challenging sometimes. And I'm not yeah. sure like the best practices on that. Um, I mean, you could like have like a rough draft of your idea and then maybe show someone who's like a normie and be like, hey, do you understand what's going on here? And they could be like, I have no idea. Like, what is it? What are these things? Because honestly, I think when it comes to painting competition, like ambiguity is kind of your enemy. You don't you don't want ambiguity. You want people to understand what you're going for immediately so that they can know and, and judge it based on that information as opposed to trying to figure out what it is and possibly judging it from like the wrong perspective. Um so yeah, I think you want to have an idea. You want to be able to present it to your audience in a very clear way because otherwise you're going to get scrutinized for things that you didn't even anticipate. Um, but yeah, I was talking about like modeling and like how to go about that. I, I want to, before we jump on to the next thing, mm-hmm. I want to say that one of, to me, the most important things is th- that the audience does not know about, does not care about, is not interested in learning the story behind what they're looking at, they want the thing they're looking at to look badass. That should be your number one goal. Yes. Not to be, it's super true to the lore, and this guy actually was not dual-wielding bolt pistols here, so I can't put double-wielded bolt pistols even though it looked fucking awesome. <laughs> you know, like, it needs to be like, whoa. My eyes drawn to that and say, wow. So that visual wow factor should be your number one goal. Now, as you can tell your own story as you go, that helps you make future future decisions. <laughs> yeah, John's just dying. Okay, so I think when it comes to a multi-model diorama, there are a lot of challenges. One is is painting it. One is like maintaining like uh, a style of lighting across all the models to make sure they look consistent. And so there's a lot of like maybe considerations and tricks you need to play in order to be able to kind of nail all those beats. Um, so let's talk about it. I think if I were to do a large scale diorama, I think the first thing would be I need to ID what models I need to pick up, right? And so it's like, I need to, I need to buy those. I need to assemble those in whatever way uh, is, is conducive to painting. And so for a competition, I feel like that's one of the rare times when doing sub-assemblies is like worth it. Yeah. Um, and so I would probably keep some models in sub-assemblies, keep some heads off, keep some arms off that are otherwise obscuring things like torsos and things like that, and also keep each model as its own individual thing because I'm assuming in a multi-model diorama, you're going to be blocking other models um, and stuff like that. Yeah. It's also hard to paint something on a large base. You need to, you want a small handle to be able to grip it and paint it well. And get into the undercarriage. And the shit. nooks and crannies. Um, I think one thing that's really important with this is like um, – it's good that if you're either going to just build it as the kit is in the box or you're going to kit bash, that you get the majority, at least like body, legs, and feet all together, even if you're doing sub-assemblies, because it's so much easier as you are later on, like building the world, building the ground and all that, that they look like they're standing with weight and they're standing in the 
environment instead of on the environment. Mm. And you can't do that nearly as easily if you don't have the model that you can put in there and you can like, um, I'm laying down some milliput and some, you know, some grit and stuff. I can place the feet in there, just a tiny little indent. So I know where he's going to be and it's nice and smooth and level. And he feels like he's standing right on the mm, ground. Nice. No floaty models, man. No. Floaty models. It's so easy to see a floaty model and I'm immediately like, yeah, yeah. yeah. you want to hide those pins and we can, we'll talk about, like if you end up with a floaty model, how to even resolve that? It really isn't that big of a deal. So if I was gonna make a big diorama that comes, you have to make a big landform, right? Mm. And so I, you'd have to kind of figure out what's the best way to kind of like make undulations, so you can then start putting things on top of it, like like terrain or bits from previous kits and stuff like that. But how do you start with that first thing? You need some kind of plinth. And if you're going for like a large diorama, maybe like a larger one, I think like Hobby Lobby and similar places have like quite large, like wooden plinths ready to go, right? Yeah, I've used those before. Yeah, yeah. And so to kind of get, so that that comes like perfectly flat, right? You need to have some kind of like some some changing in the landform. And there's a couple ways you can go about it. You can like super glue down tin foil and kind of like shape the like the way you want to shape it. And you can like add like a layer of milliput on top of it to kind of like encase it and make it hard. Um, you can do stuff like upholstery, not upholstery foam, like floral foam or any kind of like foam and kind of build a landmass up and then fill in all the gaps with sculpt the mold or a similar kind of product. I know that uh, Geek Gaming Scenics has a, a similar kind of like a paper mache cellulose like product. Um, that's a great way to do it too. That's sandable, just like Milliput. About pick one of those those two ways. Um, do you have a preference about building up landforms or uh, a process that you like? Yeah, if I am, if I'm going to be having something that looks like a natural outdoor environment, I do like using uh, bar- bark, and you can use bark as mm, your, yes. your, your filler too. So you can like place down barks of various thicknesses and height to get the formation. And then you fill in all the gaps and, and all the stuff with milliput and add the texture to make it look just like the bark. And there it's kind of like two in one. You've you filled out the, the mass how you want to and you've added what will be at least some of the final texture that will show mm-hmm. um, as opposed to doing an under filler and then getting that all done and then putting your final layers on top yeah and you don't need to use bark just for like wood stuff yeah uh, bark can also look like stone and like mountainsides right yeah yeah and you can end up covering a lot of it for like the grassy green area on top and you never know that there was bark under there but it's cheap and you can make decisions i like it because you can make decisions on the fly what areas you cover what areas you, you don't cover because we feel like once you get moving on something like creating a diorama base or a storytelling piece that once you get going, you just have to keep holding true to what your original vision was. And when you get in the weeds and work on something, you have to be able to adapt. You have to say, actually looking at this this way, I actually think it'll be cooler if I keep this area flat. I'm going to have a bunch of rocks here, but now I'm not going to like, it's all coming back to the, what's the cool vision? What's the angle that the, the viewer is going to look at from your money shot? And how is the building of the world helping in that and not hurting you in that? Yeah. We've yeah. seen some, some great examples of okay, like actual paint jobs, but they're just amazing pieces to look at because of that design. And the flip side of it, um, from Golden Demon USA, 
amazing, amazing scenery by Andy Wardle in his diorama with the vampires. I, but I think that it failed a bit from not having this nice, crisp, clear money shot where we could just see the story unfold. The story was there, and it was cool to be able to turn the, the model around and find the story. But it, where I felt it was lacking just a bit was telling that story from that one shot. So being able to adapt while you're making the your piece is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe it's, it's probably good to talk about maybe some like planning. Uh, I might get my plinth before I put any of that like tinfoil or milliput or anything on it. And I might just place the assembled models on yes. the plinth to kind of see how I like the composition. It, maybe some guy needs to get raised up. I'll go grab like a bottle cap, put them under there, a piece of foam, kind of raise it up, kind of see what works just initially. Maybe snap some photos, share it with some friends, see what their opinions are on a couple of different options and kind of kind of go from there. Yeah, because that's why when you have at least the like torso legs, even when we're talking about... Um, Sorry, I like my brain is like three steps ahead of what you guys are are hearing right now. Because um, I'm like, I'm talking about a thing and I didn't, didn't tell you what I was re- referring to. <laughs> when, when you build your models and just have the torso, legs, and feet, even if you're doing sub-assemblies, there should be almost probably very, very rarely, if ever, a situation where those shouldn't all be um, built, um, even if you're doing other sub- sub-assemblies. But if you have that done and there's still the gray plastic, you can, like you said, place the figures around with, Poster tack. Mm. That's the other great thing about um, the cork too is you can poster tack down a couple of the major pieces of cork to get your height variation correctly, mm-hmm. and you can pose how much higher should he be up than than them. And I kind of wanted them right next to each other, but now I'm on the the plinth itself with some poster tack. I actually see it's a it's a more dynamic angle if they're a little bit further apart. Mm. He's more towards the back corner instead of right next to him. You can help make those decisions um, and then take pictures of that with your phone. Mm. So then you can see, oh, that's how I had it set up. Don't rely on remembering exactly where they are and yeah. that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, absolutely. You could even like, you could even draw on the plinth with a pencil to kind of yeah. like approximate locations. But that'll get covered up by your by your, your kind of ground coverage. But um, other fun ideas for ground coverage, Woodland Scenics makes rock molds that you can fill up with hydrocal, um, which is like a a substance that dries to a kind of like a rock hard finish that's uh, sandable, but also it's brittle. So you can like snap it and break it in the shapes you want. Um, also you can do what I did, which is buy some liquid mask and go and find a rock in your backyard, clean the rock and then paint multiple layers of liquid mask over one of the edges of the rock, peel it off and then just cast your own rock faces that you can then break and apart and put in, in various spots. Um, those molds are, are still kicking uh, and I'm still getting use out of those like, first hydrocal cast that I made of a, a random rock in my backyard. Wonderful. Wonderful. I didn't have anything important to say that we need a laugh track on here. <laughs> There's definitely one on there. You you pressed it earlier. You pressed it like four times. No, I pressed the applause. That's different than a laugh track. There's no laugh track. No, there's no goddamn laugh track, Scott. Wow. Missed opportunity. Anyways, you're starting to build up your stuff. At this point, everything on your base is still destructible. So I wouldn't like necessarily worry about there being like flat parts and things like that. All the materials that we've discussed so far, you could take a Dremel router too. You could take a hobby saw too, a file too, and just carve up and like make space for like models and things like that. And it would be fine. Um, I would put on some ground texture at this point, some dirt, some rocks, things like that. Get it all nice and glued down. Start painting it maybe. Bits, if you're going to like throw in rubble of like skulls or um, 
bolters or whatever else there's going to be uh yeah. barbed wire and buildings stuff. maybe if you're going that crazy yeah bits of buildings or whatever mm-hmm. because you want those to also not feel like they're just laying on top of the ground mm-hmm. there i mean they should feel like there should be some sections where there's some dirt that or it's like coming up out of the ground or you know anytime you just see stuff it looks like it was just like boop it was placed there like in a video game yeah it doesn't feel right yeah so if it's if something is obviously like just almost just sitting directly faintly on top of the ground it needs to be for a direct purpose if that's how you want it to look in your storytelling. Yeah, maybe it just landed there like it's a spaceship or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for bits and stuff like that, I would say if you're looking to include like, uh, like say you're painting a, a space marine diorama, I would definitely say don't only look at space marine bits. Uh, maybe look at Sisters of Battle bits. Like you can really get a ton of mileage out of like uh, little bits and pieces of model from all kinds of different kits, like like regardless of like what range it came from, what game it came from, what company it came from, you can like uh, mix and match quite a bit and get a pretty cool look uh, if that's what you're going for. Yeah, and sometimes if you uh, you you're just kind of like keeping an open mind and perusing through kits, whether they're just kits you have in your shelf or bits from old kits or whatever. Sometimes you'll get an inspiration from something you would have never guessed mm. that would be something you use. But as long as you're keeping in your brain, like, okay, it's in a weird underground alien cave, uh, in weird alien cave, weird alien cave, and you're looking through your stuff, and you look at things a different way. Yeah, yeah. Because your brain will definitely just say, oh, that's a freaking you know, sewer grate from uh, something, something, but in, in the weird alien cave, maybe it's a... Uh, Skateboard. (laughs) (laughs) A little hoverboard, a little Marty McFly. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You can also modify bits. Uh, I think the sword for my Castellan and my Blood Knights is a Dark Eldar sword, but I just kind of carved off the Dark Eldar rune and kind of filled in the hole on the glove because that felt too sci-fi-y. So you can, if you're able to kind of like look at a bit and kind of see what it could be, if you just made some small changes, that also opens a door for all kinds of different ranges to be used. Yeah. And to to take a sidestep here for the goody PBs that are like, I don't ever want to do a big story thing like this. And maybe we should have prefaced this at the beginning. Um, what we're talking about here is kind of just expanding upon and putting more depth into the same basic work you do for most base building mm-hmm. for your models. Yeah. In every individual unit or whatever, you know, like you... You don't want them floating. You do want it to seem natural, their environment that they're, that they're in. You don't want them on a six-foot cork tower because <laughs> all I see is the tower. I don't really see the dude. Yeah. You know, like all these things do apply. And then tastefully adding little bits on the bases, whether it's a little mushroom mm-hmm. or a little skull or whatever. Um, it's This still applies. It's a lot of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. You definitely don't want... Even though it's a big diorama, you don't want the diorama to take over the model. So, like, even if you look at the works of Monstroys, um, like, his dioramas are huge, but they're also jam-packed with minis, right? There's not a lot of just open ground on his dioramas. (coughs) If his his, uh, whole piece is one foot by three feet, um, it's taking advantage of that full one by three feet. Right. It's not... He could not fit that same amount of models in eight inches by 12 inches. He couldn't do it. And so I think that's a really important thing. Um, Something that I have failed on before is you make a base much bigger than you need to, to tell your story. Mm -hmm. So what I was told by a couple of different 
um, painters of very, very high caliber um, that I respect a lot and that have won a bazillion awards is that you want to use the minimal amount of base possible in order to tell your story. Mm-hmm. Now, this doesn't mean use the smallest base possible. This means what is your story? What do you need there to tell that story? And don't make it a square inch bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Because then you, you're keeping it tight. You're keeping it where the eye isn't wandering. And your your people don't look like they're little fishies in a big ocean. Yeah, That's something when you're looking at a Monstroy's piece, you don't recognize because you're just overwhelmed by all the craziness that's happening. Yeah, You don't think about it because there isn't any like dead space. Yeah. I think you could also make a diorama smaller with your paint choices as well. I think uh, I think it was last week in the extended portion of the podcast, I had uh, a favorite piece that was a Gondorian prison. And the way he illuminated the scene drew your attention to certain parts of it. And the parts that were dark weren't necessarily as visually interesting. And so they weren't like, they, they felt like smaller. They felt like they were shrunk down a little bit. So there are a couple ways that you can kind of like justify having larger space on your, on your scene if you kind of like cut it with lighting as well. So say you have like a certain scene that you know you, you need to be big, but maybe you're not going to like put super important details in those spots. That's a way you can make it visually smaller by kind of by, by the way you paint it. Um, but at this stage in the base building process is when I would start to pin my models to the base, but not not actually glue them down, but like kind of get their positions correct, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like you got all your texture, all your kits down, all your like your unpainted plastic and resin. It's ready to go. Now you want to find your final resting places. I put one pin in one foot of a, of a character, um, and then I would drill a approximate hole where I want them to be, and then I'd put the other pin in them in their other foot. And then I'd put the one pin that I did initially uh, down into the drilled hole. And then I would press the new second pin into that kind of, you know, it's like milliput or, or sculptor mold. And it'd make an indent. And that would give me a location to drill the second one so that it's perfect. Mm. Um, and also, if you mess up with drilling a hole and it's not in the perfect spot, just drill a new one. Like, you can just fill it with more milliput, sculptor mold, dirt, like whatever you want. So, like, if you kind of, like, mess up the, the position, it really, it, this is like a, a low low stress, low risk thing. You could just drill more holes until you get it right. Yeah. Um, I don't, I I don't even always pin stuff. I don't, um, I don't think it's always necessary. No, if like it's a dude like jumping off of a rock, you know, Mm. like, like that Godric pose or whatever. Or not Godric. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. (laughs) Dwarven Berserker. It's, that's like the one that Sam did in, in his duel for fantasy in Golden Demon this year. Yeah. And he's like, he's a little dwarf. He's jumping and he's like, just his toes are like touching a rock. Mm. And for sure, I want a pin. But if it's like a space marine with both feet firmly planted in the typical space marine pose, if I put a little indent like into the milliput, so it's like these, you can just see these tiny little indents where I see where his feet should go. I can fucking super glue them later when it's all painted. Yeah, yeah. But if you're like, if you're taking this to competitions and it's like going a plane or something like that, maybe I should have, you know? Yeah, that's definitely uh, important. I would say it's the pinning is nice to like make sure you're not like doing anything on top of where you want to put those dudes in the future. Um, and also 
um, if you, I've done this before where I'll, I'll put a pin in the heel and drill holes and stuff. And then I'll put milliput kind of around that pin hole. And then I'll kind of like push the character down into the milliput and it creates an impression for where they need to sit. Eventually I've done this for like nights and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and that can be helpful just to kind of like register on the base where the model is going to go. One thing we didn't discuss, and I'm kind of curious on your take on this is what are your thoughts of dioramas where the models on a gaming base and it can be Slide it in, yeah. Popped in and out, and there's like a there's like a circle hole when you pull it out. What are your thoughts on those? I mean, it's like shit. Get off the pot. Do one or do the other. Sure, it's not a big deal. I don't. I don't like it. I think. I think there's a there's a there's a level of cool novelty to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, look at this. There's these little guys, and they can play the game with them. But then they also can go back in their little house, and they can (laughs) sit on the shelf. That's cool in theory. If you are doing a piece either as a display piece to give to somebody or a display piece for competition, you're not freaking playing with those models in the game anyway. Yeah. So why are they on the base? Like you're doing it because you feel like that's what Games Workshop in this example wants for their competition pieces. They want things to be on their display bases or their gaming bases because that used to be a rule and that was the first way that people did to get around that rule to still have a cool like environment in like storytelling but still checking the box that they were on their game bases interesting i know people like volamir like Raphael, like i see marin he plays uh Warhammer Underworlds like a lot and he painted his army super nicely and he has like a display board to carry the the unit around that I think he also used as a competition entry and so in that edge case it makes sense why you would do that it's pretty cool but really really think about do I need to do this because it is just extra work for you to kind of like drill out a circular like a circular sized hole or or 3d print a little receptacle that will accept like your base size that you can then build into your base I kind of did that for my table topper for Song of Ice and Fire I 3d printed little like uh, little things for the object markers to go into. And you could do the same thing for a, a base if you wanted to. And then kind of just sculpt around the receptacles. Um, but yeah, it is a lot of extra work and likely is not necessary. Yeah, I mean, because I'm not pooping on what Volmir did. In fact, what he's doing there, I think is fucking awesome. Yeah. Like, because those, they're those kobold keep trays that they have the lid on them. Yeah. They're a wide tray and they're magnetized. Yeah. And like, what if you had like you had like three or four blood bowl teams and each one is in there and it's like it's their home field so the turf is a different color and yeah. there's like thematic stuff and you show up to your game store and it's like you're pulling them out of there. That's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, that's cool. But that's for a purpose. Yeah. Right? And I think they're the you're talking about like decision making for a purpose in or like just doing it because you feel like you've seen it a bunch, so that's what you should do. I always second guess those things to to determine is it right for what I'm doing, and it goes beyond just the base sizes, but also like I see a lot of stuff too where it's like people have like big resin pours and stuff on a piece where it's like it doesn't really have anything to do with the story, but kind of like you feel like I'm doing a cool diorama. There should be water. Yeah. <laughs> Like if there should be water because it's important to the storytelling, yes. But you don't just have to do a thing because you see it done. Sometimes you want to do it just because you want to practice. Yeah, you want to experience. You want to experience a, a deeper resin pour. Yeah, and that, I mean that's I'm all for that. Yeah, but if you're like I'm truly just trying to do this for to tell the story, 
don't don't necessarily fall into cliches because you feel like it needs to check X number of boxes for it to be considered legit. Do you think uh, resin pouring is a cliche? I think it's done an awful lot. Okay, it's a little, little played out. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, that said, when it's done really well and it's done really well for a display level, like it's pretty fucking amazing. Yeah. If you if you can if you can pull it off, yeah, it looks real nice. It's really fucking ballsy too. Yeah. I, what I need is I need like Joshua Lai and, and Oliver Spath to come and fucking do all my resin pours for me. Yeah, those two are handheld. like those two are like the, the they're like the resin pour whisperers. Like their shit always looks just phenomenal. Yeah. Like crystal clear, super clean edges. I wanted there to be a slight mossy swirl near the base of the, the under the the shoreline. And then you, but you can still see crystal clear, these two fish swimming. And there's a couple of bubbles coming up. I'm like, fuck you guys. How do you do that? (laughs) It's a bullshit right there. Yeah. We're not at the resin stage yet. So I think now... No, don't do the resin pour now. Bad. Uh, I think now at this stage is when I would start priming and undercoating the model. I'd put all the models maybe on the display base, start priming it, maybe Zenithal undercoating it. And this is so that everyone can be in their final orientation and you can kind of illuminate it how you want to illuminate it. It's not super important. I would say it's important if like OSL is like present in your scene. Or just even like, a light, dir- even if it's a more uh, a hard light. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, that's gonna help you when you take off each individual model and paint them to kind of know. Okay, this guy is kind of more turned away from the light source, so like the front of his face maybe a little bit darker than the people that are like in like the main like hero group, and that kind of just you don't have to think about it anymore. It's like all just kind of like right there for you to look at uh, with the uh, the white primer and the black primer. This also is a good time to like, as you're adding color to things, even though it's just black and white, I guess we're just saying like, oh, you should be doing a Zenithal. You don't have to do a Zenithal. But even if you don't end up using the Zenithal, which I I feel like a a large portion of us Zenithal prime our models, but then don't really use the Zenithal, which there's nothing wrong with that. Because at the very least, what it does is it gives your eye better definition to see where where shapes and folds are and all the details are on the model while you're painting it. Yeah. There's value in there alone. Yeah. But the most value, I understand what you're saying, comes from like almost painting in like a wet blending kind of way. Or or, or that too, transparent uh, uh, painting. But also like Sirastro, the one he paints, he's like, okay, I can see with the white undercoat that this part's brighter. So I'll slap on some brighter paint here. And then immediately while that's still wet, I'll slap on some slightly like darker paint right here and I'll blend them together. And he uses the the Zenithal to like kind of like know where to put his highlights. And I think that's pretty good value too, right? I agree. So contrast paint though, definitely also a great way to, to use the Zenithal undercoat. Yeah. Um, while you're doing this and you're, you're kind of setting up your lights and darks and stuff, it's also a good way for you to kind of see and visualize what would be, especially if you're talking about a bigger piece, what should be the attention grabbers? Where do I want the eyes to direct mm. on the piece? And light should follow and direct. And so even though you're only dealing with black and white right now, you should say like, okay, I want them the eye to go to the base of this giant's feet where there's two guys with swords and shields hacking at him. And then it's going to go up the giant and see what he's doing about to crash down on them. So the light should follow that almost like a, like a triangle Mm. from the sides of the, the base closest to you. And it, it narrows in towards the, the two dudes and then up. And so 
you can decide which parts of your environment or which parts of the model should be more lit or less lit to, to draw the eye. So you can start <coughs> doing that right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, another one of our mutual favorite mini painters, Roman Lapot, makes a bunch of gigantic dioramas as well. And he has some great ones. I think one of my favorites called Night's Watch, where it's like a bunch of like people huddled around a giant like gate like defending their city from who knows what's coming and like even that 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 has a bunch of characters in it and it's kind of uh they're all like kind of painted in an interesting way but it, it still feels like that has like uh an intention about like what it's trying to draw like your your eyes to even in that large group of people or his most recent bridge thing like i think the thing you want to look at is the survivors on top of the bus with the Uzi or whatever she's holding, like yeah. defending against the zombies. Yeah, it's their know? final stand right there. Right. They're yeah. all closing in. Yeah, that that um, I can picture distinctly that that piece you're talking about. They're all outside the city gates. Yeah, yeah. And there's a ton of detail and like parpets and all this stuff about around the city gates, but you don't notice most of it because it's all very much in shadow, and you're drawn down to the few torches that some of the people are carrying, and so it's just like you're drawing down to like this is the last defense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and you can do that with so many different methods. You can do that with like the the value of your color, how light and dark it is. You can do it with the hue of your color. So in that diorama, like all the stone is like blues and grays. And then all the people are like painted like more vibrant colors. They're all in different like cloths and stuff like that. And just because of that color choice, we're more drawn to it. So it, it isn't just about the zenithal undercoat and nailing the value. There's all, all sorts of ways you can draw attention to the, the important parts of your diorama. And I don't, oh, did you hear that? No, we need a fart mic. Oh, dude, these these headphones are great. I just damn near shit my pants and I didn't even hear it. <laughs> I felt it. You're going to smell it. <laughs> I felt it. <laughs> but, okay, what I think an important thing here is, is I don't want to give the impression to all the goody peepees is that you have to, if you want to do a cool diorama or, you know, cool piece that's larger, that you have to involve um, intense lighting or interesting lighting. Yeah. That's not necessary. No, not at all. And you can have, you know, amazing, amazing pieces that don't really lean into that. But at this stage, we're mentioning it now because at this stage is when you would really start laying the groundwork for that so you're not making your life harder two steps away from now yeah because you hadn't done it you could just skip it like john's saying though yeah. and just prime everything black and then paint things normally um there's like there's like a lot that you could do if you knew about it and you were prepared for it in, in most hobbies and i feel like for a lot of people that can feel like a mental barrier to even try anything because it's like i don't know if i'm gonna like do the right steps but the reality is, is that whenever I paint a mini or I do a diorama, it is never the exact same steps. Like uh, again, I'm always adding on new things, taking away things, trying stuff. So the first time you make a giant diorama, and then you, like compared to the second time you do it, you're gonna keep half those steps and trying new things the second time. So it's like you're, you're never ever, even when you're confident and a good painter, are gonna have like the right like formula for how to make a diorama. So just kind of like just 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 start now and see what happens. I guess is what I'm trying to say. That's, yeah, that's really good advice. Be, it, everyone, like, look, even the people that do this a lot, how many do they make in their entire life? You know? Yeah. I mean, and, but there are probably people that could make a couple hundred in their life, but most of us. Maybe like 20 max, 15 max. max. You know, 5, 10, you're ever going to make. So don't feel like it's about 
becoming an expert in it. Um, it's about also just kind of like being open to the experience and enjoying it mm. and being flexible to that experience. We talk about things like Easter eggs. Nick talked about like, when do you add Easter eggs and stuff like that? <laughs> we got to talk about the best Easter egg hider in all of mini painting. Oh. Aaron, Aaron Lovejoy. Dicks on dicks. Dicks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But make your point first. Um, it's you, you can do those things towards the end. Um, where it's like, Oh, I want there to be a little, little bunny smoking a blunt back here. Like, <laughs> like, you can do it whenever it's like yeah. it strikes you like, oh, that would be funny if blah, 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 blah. Don't feel like it's like, okay, now today I'm going to sit down and paint for two hours. But instead of painting, I'm going to find Easter eggs that I want to do. Like that should be part of your creative process and like let it happen naturally. Mm. If you see things that you're like, oh, it would be funny to add something. Um, I don't know what. But when you're crafting the environment, if you have like this little like rotten out, hollowed out log build that into the base and stuff there. Cause it gives you an option to paint something and hide it in there later, whatever. Like if that's something you want to do as you're building, you need to, to build those things in because you can't just after the fact, you get the whole freaking piece painted mm. and you're like, Oh, I'm going to add some more terrain and stuff in here. Now it's just like, Oh, you just made your life so much fucking harder. Yeah. Yeah. Do it from the, the beginning. Yeah. Um, certain details are easier to add. Uh, like later in the process, other ones really need to kind of be there the entire time or else it's going to be a pain in the ass to paint them after the fact. All right, Scott, I got a question for you. All right. What do you paint first? Do you paint the models first or do you paint the environment first or some combination? I feel like this is a matter of preference, but uh, man, did you just like crop dust me on the way in? No, that's the fart that I did before I went to go pee. And when I sat back down, it was just like sitting in a beanbag chair. And it was just like, gosh, (laughs) I hate it. I hate it so much. Um, I feel like, I feel like you should paint the base first, but like knowing me, I would paint the models first. Cause I feel like I'm kind of the most excited to see those come to life. But there is something very, really satisfying about Having a fully painted diorama that you like put gray models on. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Does that look cool? <laughs> that's a best whip. Yeah. That's how you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how you win the whip awards. Yeah. <laughs> the whip awards. Best whip. What, make, what, what makes the best whip? It's like, I want an entirely beautifully smooth black model with one foot painted. That's, that's the, that, that wins the whip awards. Dude, we should do once a year, we should do the whip awards episode. <laughs> We just go through and find people's whip pictures yeah. and we can come up with categories. Be like, you know, most uh, the winner for the most not a whip whip award. Yeah. Goes <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to say Michael Pasarski right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's pretty good about that. <laughs> um, I have a question kind of re- related to that. What are your thoughts on painting static grass? Do you apply static grass before priming or after priming? Um. I, if you, if you get the good stuff, <laughs> if you get that good grass you can do it after, but I still like to do like a thin down ink that kind of goes to like seeps down in it and then it hits the ground kind of around it mm-hmm. and then I kind of feather it out or keep it faint over a couple layers. Okay. So it feels part of the rest of your painted stuff. Okay. Nothing sticks out to me as fake more than like entirely painted thing and then just like three grass tufts that don't fit at all 
with the, the environment that they're in. Yeah. So it's like you could do some pigment powders. You could do some um, washes. You can do some glazes, whatever, um, to add a fit, like, like a faint color shifting. But painting them like all the way from primer back up, it's like, man, well, it's like you just made yourself so much more work to do, didn't you? I suppose so. And also, <laughs> it, can look, it can look a little fakey. Like uh, if like your patch of grass kind of matches the surrounding area, it's like you very clearly airbrushed that part, and it's like there's like green like around the patch of grass, yeah. and then the ground color starts. Yeah. So I think yeah, probably a better idea would be to do the grass after you prime, and then like say you're like painting on like a red mesa, you could like take some diluted like base color of that like kind of reddish brown and kind of like spray it around the edges of your grass to kind of like blend it into what you want your ground cover to be. So let the static grass do the driving about what color it wants to be, but then kind of like modify it like with pigments, like you said, or washes or an airbrush to kind of make it kind of tie in with everything else. I didn't listen to most of what you just said. That's okay. It was really good advice and they'll all appreciate it. I know they will. Screw you. I know they will. Because you said the word Mesa. Mesa pizza. What? Mesa pizza? Yeah. Mesa pizza in Dinky Town, bro. Uh, now I kind of want pizza. Okay. Well, hey, when you said Mesa, I want to know if any of my goody peepees know this hot take. There's a cartoon back when I was a kid. It's called Cowboys of Moo Mesa. <laughs> it's about cows no. that were cowboys. Okay. And they were like and dealt with the bad guys. So I'm, that's really, you said the word Mesa and my brain goes, Boop. whatever happened to that <laughs> cartoon Cowboys of Moo Mesa? <laughs> Shout out to Moo Mesa. <laughs> All right. Now we're into the painting phase. I think when you get into this phase, it's very tempting to paint the most important in miniature first, but I might suggest to paint the least important miniature first <laughs> because you're going to figure out a lot of things about your yourself, about yourself, your life, yeah, humanity, right? John's fart smells. No. I hope you don't figure anything about those while you're painting because yeah. that means like, you're, you're painting under my desk while I'm <laughs> editing videos. Yeah, yeah. That'd be bad. Uh, so I think you're going to figure out, one, the colors you might want to use. Uh, you might figure out, like, the effort level that you want to, like, employ. I think uh, with a large diorama like this, it's super easy to, like, kind of get, like, painting fatigue, you know? Yes. And so there are a couple ways to combat that. One, maybe give yourself a time limit about, like, how long you can paint each one of these individual models. Um, or having an end date is a great. So if you're painting this for a competition, it's like, okay, it's got to be done sometime in January for LVO. Sure. That's all the time I have. And so I'm going to like allocate this amount of time to each of these models. And I'm going to like maybe change it based on how important the model is. You know, the hero guy gets 30 hours. The small dudes get 15 hours. Really when it comes to a diorama with a bunch of models, the question is, is how much time do you want to spend on it? Right. Because you could spend an eternity. On a single model, like if you were that crazy, but especially on like five or six models, you could go to fucking town, you know? I think that there's a reason why the unit category is the one in painting competitions, the one that you hear so many people say they're going to enter and so few people actually finish. Yeah. Because it's like doing four to six or seven models it seems like it's not such a big deal until you realize how much time it takes for just one of them. Mm -hmm. What I'd recommend and what I've done in, uh, in the few times I've worked in this way 
is you do any portion up to like 75% ball sack. Paint mm. this model, 75% done. You know, you're mentally saying, I'm not painting this to my best. I'm not painting this to be done. Then you move down to the, the base. Mm -hmm. Then you move on to another one of the models until you get everything to 75%. Mm -hmm. And then you've still left yourself enough room to go through and change some things. I'm going to change the lighting. I'm going to change this to be a cool shadow instead of a warm shadow. I'm going to change some of the stuff on the base for the direction where the light's coming from, stuff like that. Because <clears throat> you haven't done so much of that final work, which takes a long time, that you kind of feel like you're pointing the past of return to be able to make changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you see paint, a respectable amount of paint on everything. And I found when I've done that, it gives me my second wind yeah. to push to finish. Yeah. It's like I see the potential. I see it could be cool. Um, whether you have, but if you have like one model painted as best you can and everything else is gray, it's easy to get like, fuck me. I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. That is, that can be a really bad feeling. <laughs> yeah. And then you have it all painted and it's done and you did an awesome job. And that's the, that's, that's what we, that's what we talk about on the podcast. Congratulations. You did a great job. <laughs> Which one is that one? It's number one, baby. Number one, baby. Okay. Uh, some other things that are probably important to consider when making a, a large diorama is that sometimes when you go to reinstall your painted models in their chosen places, you might have some gap issues. You might notice that, uh, like the feet are a little bit lifted up. Like maybe you didn't account for something and a piece of like, uh, I don't know, like uh, some of that bark got in the way of a heel or something like that. Um, bark, 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 bark. Yeah. So maybe when you did your pin and you super glued it, there's like this little bit of, of gouge down yeah, into the, the foot, you know, and you want it perfectly flat, but then there's that little gouge. Attack of the gouge. Dude, that happens to me all the fucking time. Yeah. Okay, anyways. Uh, I feel like you don't need to be super precious about very small painted areas on your diorama or your miniature. So I feel like if something is in the way, you just, just hack it up. Just, just cut it off. Or... If like the gap really isn't that big, you can install it with super glue and then just kind of like fill in the gap with like some dirt that you might kind of paint a similar color to the surrounding dirt. And a small little repair job like that is really going to go unnoticed and no one's going to be able to tell that you had to kind of fix that. So don't go too crazy in like the planning phase, making sure everything is like super like locked in because, you know, a very simple fix is not going to be noticeable and is going to just it'll save you some time up front as well. So. Yeah, don't be yeah. Don't, don't be too, don't be too precious. Yeah, the um, the simple fix will almost never be noticeable, but the floaty foot will always be noticeable. Mm -hmm. So it's like, don't freak out, you know. Especially when you're dealing with the base, it's got all sorts of interesting color and terrain and grass and debris and shit. It's just like you need to prime this little bit of milliput you put on there. You just slapped a couple things of gray and then you you stippled it to look like the stuff around it and it's good. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I think the most important thing when it comes to a diorama like this is really the planning process and the composition, right? If you do a good job in that process, you know where to spend your time. You know what models are the most important, but also you're ensuring that by the end of it, you're going to have something that looks good and doesn't like, it wasn't just like a line of dudes standing there revolutionary war style uh, that looks super lame and not dynamic at all. I think when you lock all that stuff in, I like how they're placed, their height, their angle, where they're pointing, stuff like that. 
ahead of time it just saves you a lot of time later on and it's just like it's just painting then at that point which is kind of like you know always the same okay i want to talk about something i want to talk about the base rims Mm. okay because some of these more um detailed diorama things they have like almost like a little molding around the side of the base rim Mm -hmm. a lot of times they're made of wood like if you have like a little resin one it's like just like shink and really like crisp and black along the sides or whatever. Mm-hmm. First of all, tape that shit off, bro. Um, like very early on, when we talked about doing the priming stuff. If you got a nice crisp edge, that's like a resin or whatever that's a- around your your um, the base rim. Tape that shit off with painter's tape, because if you just spray paint it all black, it doesn't look nearly as cool as when it's just like that clean crisp resin, and then you just peel that tape off. Oh, so if it was like black resin or something like that? Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, absolutely. Um, But if you're doing one that's wood, one thing that that I see a lot that bugs me and I have heard from judges is feedback is it's distracting when it's not smooth and it's not like well sanded. So it's like this nice, crisp, clean outline. It's got like little debris and roughness from the actual wood because you didn't go through and make sure it was nice and smooth before you painted it black so it's not distracting Mm -hmm. and i've I've been guilty of that too and and judges called me on it so i think it's it's an important thing to do as part of like your cleanup stage and stuff at the end like when do you do the base rim or um i would smooth and sand that shit um before you get too far into the building process at least the primary initial sanding otherwise you're going to get sawdust and shit if you do that when everything's painted, it's like you don't want to get that all over your finished piece if you're, like, sanding the sides, you know. Yeah. So. Um, it's at this point in the diorama when you would start doing something like resin pours, um, if, the, if, like a, if a model you're painting is, like, inside water, you would, like, install them with the pins and superglue at this point and then do the resin pour. Um, if they're not um, in the water, then I would keep them out for the time being. Um if you have to like mask off certain parts of the models, uh, there are, or sorry, like the edges of the diorama, there are many ways to do that. Um, and this is when planning really matters. Um, so like if you have like a a flat edge of your base that you want to mask off, it's really important in like the planning process to really make sure that side or sides of the diorama are super flat. Um, this allows you to, put some kind of damming on that wall and have like no gaps around the outside because if you don't sand it super flat and there's some kind of like bubble or bend and you use like a hard sheet of styrene for instance as your dam you're going to get drips because it's not like having a nice perfect like uh, contact point uh similar for like curves and shit you need uh, like a dam that's like bendable that like can maintain a curve and so a great example of that is i believe it's called acetate it's the kind of plastic you see in blisters that can bend and when taped down, it can hold a curve like perfectly like around a cylindrical plinth or something like that. How does my acetate? It tastes terrible. <laughs> um, um, oh, Scott, do you, should you do a, uh, like a varnish and shit after once you're all done painting? Probably not. Um, I think if you're paying something for display and it's not going to get touched, you don't ever need to varnish. There's ab- there's no point in doing it. Yeah, don't let strangers touch your display. Yeah. 
I don't know. Do you, uh, when you hand someone like a bunch of your models to look at, do you tell them, can you grab it by the base? Do you ever? I don't let people, I never hand people my models. No, no one comes over to look at your minis and. Um, I don't. Or like you bring them somewhere or something like that. I will say this. When I paint people's models for Dungeons and Dragons. Right. I come over there and I put it on the table and shit and they pick it up by the model and not the base. That's the first and last time they fucking do that. Yeah. Yeah. You give them the good old wallop. I I say, don't you ever fucking do that again. <laughs> you fucking bastard. I will break your goddamn kneecaps. I'll snap your dick in half. <laughs> Suck your dick off. <laughs> <laughs> I'll eat your ass. <laughs> that just made me fart. I laughed so hard. Um. So, yeah, dude, you don't make the mistake twice. And then they don't. They don't make the mistake. Mm-hmm. And they got a, they got my, my fucking knuckles in their forehead one time. All right, yeah. Back to resin. All John threatens people more. <laughs> uh, I would say if you're gonna color your resin with some kind of dye, definitely do like a test in like a cup or something like that to the height that you plan on doing your resin pour in your diorama. The reason I say this is because you might put one drop of resin dye in the resin and it doesn't look like much, but as soon as there's like Two inches of it, it's like way more opaque. Yeah. It's yeah. like super fucking blue. You spent 150 hours to make this great diorama. Yeah, yeah. You got this stupid ass blue water. Yeah. So that yeah. sucks. That's why people stress out so much about resin pours because you do them at the very end. So all the work you did right up to this point could be fucked if this looks stupid. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, make sure. So like, yeah, measure the height. And then just pour it into a solo cup at the same height and just see. And if it's crazy, reduce the dye. Also, make sure that you kind of accurately measure the dye to resin ratio just in case you need to add more on like at the end. Um, because if you don't have the right ratio and you add another layer of like blue water and this is very clearly some kind of stripe on the top that's not the same, it's going to look super awkward. Um, the... Uh, I, I was just gonna say if if like if you if this is a piece that you put a lot of work into, I would even do like a, a quick I do a a little separate thing where it is like a base that has a similar kind of water pour you want to do dry brush the same colors that are on your base that are under the shoreline or whatever mm-hmm. <coughs> mask it off the same way that you're gonna do yours so kind of you get basically do a dry run yeah of of the exact mix make sure you note what your mix is and how much ink or blah, 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 you put in there and do it and let that cure all the way. Mm-hmm. And then you'll know. And you're like, uh, I don't like this. If you don't like it, change it and do another one, another dry run. until you like you are happy with how it turned out. Same thickness, same depth, whatever. This is all in an ideal world, right? And it's not like, well, the competition's in four days. I got to do the thing today if it's going to cure in time. Like, GG. Yeah, that happens. You got to sometimes just Suck it up and hope for the best. But yeah, you can also you don't have to have a situation where you're having to dam the sides of the base. You could just make a depression in your diorama that you fill with resin, and in that case, that's super fucking easy. Yeah, those are way easier. Yeah, maybe that's a good first step for you if you're looking to add like some kind of like water to one of your dioramas. Yes, for sheezy, sheezy, my dreezy. I think we covered this. Mm-hmm. 
Because I know, because my tummy gets a little rumbly, that means that it's time for the newsy news. <laughs> Out of the news! I'm not coughing near as much as long as I sit back here like this. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know if I'm in frame for the camera right now, but... That's okay. Um, you all understand. Yeah. So, talking about some news, uh, I can't I don't, I don't. can't see right now, so I'm just going to say the only one that I know. Uh, Trent from Miscast Terrain put out a video called Make What You Love. And in it, he basically put out for free a ton of assets that he had created previously that were once once cost something for free and so you could take these either art drawings these um like settings uh all these items to kind of inspire creativity and use them for your own projects so if you're developing an rpg system if you're developing a line of miniatures if you're developing a universe for miniatures to exist inside of at some point in the future you can use these tools and uh things that he's uh, put out into the universe uh for free of no charge cost to you so that's a super cool thing shout out to you trent for doing that you're a better creative person than both me and john um and i appreciate how you're kind of driving forward that next generation of uh of content creators and creators in general you see he made like a giant speaker thing out of a trunk. Yeah. Like, he was sitting on it in that video. Like, what the fuck, man? He's, he's just got just, that Casey Neistat energy. He's got this random, he just does weird random things that they always seem cool. Yeah. Like, he's just like, hey, I'm Trent. I live in this old abandoned shack and I'm cool. Yeah. Like, thanks, Trent. It was kind of funny because like, I was thinking about how Trent like moved into his space and how I'm moving into my space. And not only is not only is like where he's working out of, like just like the the bare bones area, just scream Trent. Yeah. And how the area I'm working just screams me so much. But they're just so different, you know? I am incredibly clean cut and dry. None of this random shit. None of that. Everything needs to be cold and calculated. And like Trent's just like free spirit you know that's so yeah let the space dictate what it wants to be man i know dude that's definitely what he does like i don't even want this wall to be a wall if it doesn't want to be a wall man man yeah yeah that's not how trent talks yeah i mean it's close you want to hear how trent talks yeah i want to hear how he talks. yeah give me your best aussie accent here comes a british accent Right, oh, it's my name is Trent, and I'm going to make a thing for you for your role playing game. That was it was pretty good when you said Trent sounded very Australian. Yeah, yeah. All right, more news. Fabulous Marines fundraiser. Uh, Vincey V made a video for this, benefiting the Trevor Project. <laughs> it gets put on uh, by Zambies. Is that correct? Are you sure? I'm not sure. People are painting fabulous looking Space Marines. There's a lot of fabulous out there on the internet right now. Yeah. I mean, me included. Yeah. Anyways, they're getting auctioned off, and the proceeds go to the Trevor Project. So that is, it's, but, but, but the the auctions might be over by now. Well, we're gonna have a link down to to the Fabulous Marines below, so you can check it out. Mm-hmm. And if not, you can at least see like uh, maybe a little slidey show of all the different ones that people have made, mm-hmm. and you can check the hashtag too. Um, if you just go on Instagram and stuff, you can check the hashtag and see other cool stuff people painted. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I got one. Okay. Kingdom Death. Summer uh, Summer of Titties. Yeah, dude. Jakey, Jakey boy, he he messaged me and he was like, if you want to get a pinup right now, now is the time. Because everyone that was in a box is now being sold as an individual. Is that what's going on? Uh, yeah, I looked at it last night. There was like something like 20-some different ones. And there's dungs. Males and females pinups. All right. There's a lot of them. Um, but not only have they have like 
you want some risque models to paint. Um, but also they're having a painting contest, the summer pinup painting contest. Okay. You can paint one of these. It starts, uh, it opens July 14th. I don't know how long it goes on for, but we'll have a link down below. And so from, you know, it's starting soon from when this episode launches. So if you want to get into painting competition and you want to paint some TNA or some DNA <laughs> or some dino DNA. <laughs> uh, DNA. I love how that uh, sounds like the acronym DNA, but it's just dicks and ass. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can, what's it, what what's your thoughts on, on, on TNA? You know, do you? I haven't seen a, a pinup out of you yet. I don't really know if you'd like them or don't like them. No, I don't really like. No? Which is kind of weird because I like Kingdom Death. But yeah. like I I have zero interest in the stuff that they do that's like that. I just, so I don't there's know. So no, there's no pinup, there's no John pinup in the future? Not in not that I know of. Like, okay. If there is a model that I think is really cool and it just happens to have a uh, a little cleavage it's kind of despite that not because of that okay i don't know i just like i like that's fine i'm like eight year old john okay really forever where it's just like i just like cool evil sword swinging skeleton vampire dudes you're like, telling me that eight-year-old john wouldn't be in tna <coughs> i mean no I like I he was all yourself i mean maybe i don't know i don't really know like i didn't have like the tila models or the <coughs> action figures i did have she-ra I did have She-Ra, um, and she rode on a, uh, a Pegasus. <laughs> cool story, bro. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So suffice to say, John's not going to pay a pinup in the future. I mean, I'm not Fine. saying I wouldn't, but also it's like my daughter often is down in my painting area and likes to see what I paint and I, likes to see I what I way. do and watches my videos and stuff. And so I don't. that's not a message I want to send her. Okay. And so, what is the message you're sending? I'm sending that I want you to be the female warrior that cuts off assholes' heads. Not the one that's like, ah! Mm. <laughs> that's what I want. So you're telling yeah. me that being, ah! And cutting off heads is mutually exclusive? I think oftentimes it is. Yeah. I'm giving you a hard time right now intentionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oftentimes it is mutually exclusive. But I think you can be sexy and powerful at the same time, maybe. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But I being mean, sexy doesn't mean that you have wear no clothes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes right. it means that. I mean, sometimes it means that. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of it kind of implies that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> all right, World Model Expo is going on right now, and holy cow, do I want to be there? I know we got some FOMO going on between us right now. Yeah. So okay, there are three like categories for the painting competition. There's a fantasy, there's modern, and I think there's actually there's four. There's a sculpting one, and there's a fourth one I can't think of. But I pulled the judges list, uh, and I just kept in. In our doc, like the people that I recognize, Francesco Frabi is the lead judge. Then you got Roman Lapotte, Robert Carlson, Valentin Zach, uh, Massimiliano Ricciero, Jose Manuel Palomares, Fabrizio Russo, Kiria Cosimos, Mark Masclan, Patrick Mason, Christoph Kabalzik. A lot of fucking, like, where, who's going to compete if you got all these guys being judges? Why are there so many judges? <laughs> right. I feels like this is. A dumb idea. I'm, you think it's gonna, dumb? I'm just going to throw this out there. In what world does this number of judges actually get <laughs> to a consensus? realistic result? Yeah. That's, I mean, the only possible way 
is if they actually use a structured system, a structured point system, mm -hmm. where each judge has a sheet and gives assigns a point score with a final total, and then you average totals of scores amongst all the judges. In such a situation, that large number of qualified judges is a good thing. Mm. I would bet dollars to donuts that that's not the way this is being judged. Mm. I hope it is, and I hope I'm wrong. But they're going to all sit around the miles, and these guys are going to all... Okay. But if that's the way it is, this is awesome. If not, yeah, I, that was a question I had too. You got like a dozen judges here, bro. Who's entering? <laughs> I don't know. But I saw, I saw pictures of like the, the event. And one thing that's super cool about World Model Expo is that the model, there's no case in between you and the minis. I love that. It's, there's tables and then lamps over the tables, and you can just get right up in there. Fucking raw dog it, I baby. Know, just raw dog, get right in there, check out those minis. I think that's so cool. And also I think something else cool about World Model Expo is that it moves, I think, every two years. So it is doesn't it, happen. It's not, it's not every year. Does it slowly move like a like an inch an hour? No, no. Like while you're there over the course of the weekend, the whole place moved two feet? No. Oh, I think okay. World Model Expo was in Chicago at some point, maybe two years oh, ago what? or four years ago. No I think it happened way. I know. I think it was once every two years, and I think it moves locations. Although I do think that last time it was on, it was also going on in Eindhoven, which is where it's going on now. So I don't know if it moves every year. It's kind of confusing. There wasn't an about me section on their website, so I couldn't really know. Also, but, it's only every other year? What the fuck, I guys? I think so, but maybe I'm wrong about that. I couldn't, again, I couldn't find an about me section on the website that explained what the fuck was going on. Maybe maybe there were some kind of uh, issues with COVID and stuff, too, because like most things, there were at least one year was canceled. Yeah, possibly. So, oh, uh, but that's it. I, I totally want to go. But, bro, dude, I looked at the manufacturer like floor plan to see who was there. <sighs> I would spend an irresponsible amount of money at this yeah. place. There's like every display model manufacturer who is anyone is at this place. Oh, baby. All with their product. It would be so sick. Also, there was a fucking manufacturer called Wendy's Minis. I'm like, God damn, Wendy's is making minis now? What? what? Do you get a free Frosty if you yeah. buy a mini? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Cup of chili, bitch? <laughs> yeah, dude. So oh. Apparently, Wendy's is making models in there at World Mall Expo. That's pretty sick. I mean, they already made a D&D &D campaign. What's next? <laughs> Minis. That's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Minis, and the first con they go to is World Model Expo wow. in Eindhoven. Wendy's don't fuck about, right? No, they're, they're like, like, I'm getting right to the heart of it. Yeah, we're gonna, if we're going to make a splash, we're going to make a big splash. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a deep cut right there. Welcome to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for sticking around at the end, listening to us ramble on about all sorts of nonsense. If you like the podcast and you want to support it, there are a number of ways that you can do it, both free and not free. Some free ways are you can whitelist our channel with various browser add-ons that allow you to watch our Google ads on YouTube. We play one every 30 minutes. You can tell your nerd friends about our podcast. You can review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts for the third time. Some not free ways to support the show is you can uh, uh, submit to us uh, your... What? Uh, what? Submit to us sexually. What do you say? You can become a patron. There we go. There's the word you're looking for. On Patreon. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. And as a patron, you get access to an extended episode. It's about 20, 30 minutes longer. You get cool things like us chatting about models that we like from other painters, new things we tried out in the hobby and failed and experimented with. You also get to hear us talk about a, uh, not talk about, but give feedback to uh, one of the patrons. So as a patron, you get to submit your models for feedback with us, but you also get 
to submit topics for us to discuss, like we did this week with Nick Essox, a- a.k.a. Sexual Chocolate. Yeah, we need more ideas. Okay? Yeah, we're we running need, out. We need ideas for episodes, and we also need uh, trapped under plastic taglines mm. in, in the video description below, you, or, you know, in the comments below, not the video description. Mm. Um, you can't edit that. We can edit that. Yeah, we can edit that. We can see what you said, and then we can say it for everyone else to hear. Yes. <laughs> can we just give ourselves a round of applause for getting through the shilling at the end of the episode here? Because that, that was really rough. That was rough. That was rough. But listen. Not my, not my best work. Listen, I what the, what we can do is we can say it was rough, and we're going to we're gonna going to rebound here for our outro of the episode because we're going to say listen this has been great this has been a wonderful episode quite frankly the best episode literally huge this episode this episode was huge (laughs) it was the greatest episode of all the episodes and we all it was really going to be the greatest episode of all episodes but the drum beat stopped so now we're going to start again and say we love trapped under plastic and we're gonna catch you on the flippity flop